Dale's Petcast. They provide unconditional love, unlimited companionship, and unquestionable support. We're talking about your pets. Useful information for you to better care for and understand your pet. This is Steve Dale's Petcast, brought to you by MerrickPetCare.com. It's that time. It's another Petcast with Steve Dale, yours truly, brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And on the line with me is Dr. Ruth Ann Lobos, lead veterinarian at Merrick Pet Care. Hello, Dr. Lobos. Hey, Steve. How are you doing today? I am okay. I'm preparing for the worst. Good. Yes. And that's what we're going to talk about, disaster preparedness. And here's the thing. I've, I've talked about this before many, many times. And, and people, me included, really, say, oh, yeah, I'll do all these things that Dr. Ruth Ann tells me to do sometime because it's not going to happen to me. That's the thing. People think, oh, I can put it off. I can put it off because it's never going to happen to me. But sadly, these things, whether we're talking about tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, we're, we're talking about the unexpected, earthquakes, I don't know. I mean, really, these things, like a gas leak in the neighborhood, and you have to evacuate, those kinds of things. Uh, A fire down the street, but they're evacuating you too. I mean, these things do happen to someone all the time. Why couldn't it be me or you or anyone else? Exactly, exactly. And I mean, you bring up the fire down the street, and that actually happened to us about a week ago. Really? Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. And we were able to get back in there pretty quick. um, But you just never know if you're going to be out for a couple of days. Right. So preparing is what it's all about. When When you're told, okay, you have to leave, and you have five minutes to do it, Without preparing in advance, it's even more difficult because it's a difficult thing to do anyway. But this is that makes it far more difficult in so many different ways. You have to think, well, what do I bring with me? Of course, this conversation is about pets specifically. So what should people do to prepare? Yeah, I'm a big fan of getting like a, one of those Rubbermaid boxes, um, the plastic bins. And having an extra bowl for water and an extra bowl for food. It's challenging to store food in there because, you know, obviously we don't, we we don't want, we're not planning for this disaster to hit through. So um, that food may sit in there for a little bit, but at least have some of those things like a measuring cup so that, you know, you can feed a consistent amount if you have to leave pretty quickly. Um, the other things in there, you know, having a, an extra leash and an extra collar and um, even one of, you know, just a, a little bed or something for them to lay on so that if you are, um, what I would say, dehomed, um, that you have some sort of smells of home and a place for them to be able to go or sit or lay down wherever you may be evacuating to. Um, you know, other things in there, if you can, um, and it would Certainly, you'd want to check it routinely to make sure that um, the medications didn't expire. But if your pet is on some sort of routine medication, to have a week or two supply 
you know, stored in there would be another thing that would help just to keep a consistent sort of nutrient and medication routine for them that, again, can just help to keep them nice and calm and settled while you're worried about, you know, finding a safe place or a new home or whatever you may be to escape that disaster that that you're facing. And then if you do need to evacuate quickly, you just grab that Rubbermaid container and you know you've got everything in there that your pet needs to kind of continue on their quote-unquote normal life routine. Except you don't have the pet. So with dogs, it's not too difficult. I don't know. It depends what's going on. The dog may be afraid. Uh, But with cats, that's tough at times. I mean, you take out the carrier, and the cat now has a passport out looking to get out of the country, right? (laughs) Yes, yes. So I think, you know, to that point, another... This is probably more broad stroke than actual disaster preparedness, but really is to have that carrier kind of be part of the normal, whether it's day to day or week to week, where it's not so scary when it comes out. So maybe the carrier sits out for a couple of days and you put it away for a couple of days and nothing actually happens so that when you do pull out that carrier in a potential like disaster preparedness or escape um, need, that they don't freak out. They're like, oh, it's just the carrier coming out. You know, no big deal. Like, yeah. let's, you know, maybe we'll go on an adventure or something. Um, and their stress level stays nice and low. Yeah, I would even put treats in that carrier, you know, periodically when you take it out just to have it out. Uh, make it uh, an automatic treat dispenser. So it's, uh, yeah, even, exactly. yeah, it's an even better place to go, in fact. Uh, so... We're talking about disaster preparedness, and we're talking about getting the pets ready. Is there anything else that we need to do for that, such as veterinary records, uh, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a great point. And and I think this kind of goes more broad stroke as well. Um, Beyond just having a copy of your veterinary records or maybe your pet portal login information if your veterinarian has online uh, records for your pet. Uh, But having their microchip ID information up to date um, and just, again, maybe setting a reminder in your calendar to every couple of months, just make sure that that's up to date or if you're moving or things like that, to really make sure that you have that on your to-do list. especially with things like the 4th of July coming up next weekend and pets escaping when they hear fireworks and trying to get to their safe places. Um, You know, that that even is another reason to make sure that their ID information is up to date. Yeah, absolutely true about the ID information. Now, it used to be the thinking was, okay, you're told you're going to be back in your house in an hour even or, or a day maybe at worst. Uh, that, okay, pets can be there, they're fine for an hour, they're fine for a day. Uh, The thinking on that has changed in part because what if it's not an hour, what if it's not a day, what if it's six days? Uh, The mantra has been from me, never, never leave your pets behind. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, that is certainly the belief we have in our household uh, as well. And, you know, I think we're in a day and age now where we're so fortunate that so many more hotels are pet friendly, um, even some of these disaster shelters, like whether you're in an area that is more prone to hurricanes or, 
you know, I know in the Chicagoland area, y'all just had a bunch of tornadoes that came through. And, you know, so some of those now shelters um, that people can go to are actually pet friendly as well. And so I think that's, you know, more and more our society has realized just how beneficial and how special our pets are, you know, and, and really true family members. And so not, you know, excluding them from shelter situations, especially during times of disaster, has become more common practice. So what I've told people to do, and thank you because you're leading me perfectly in this direction, <laughs> is to, if you have a half hour free, go online and look for places to stay that allow pets, whether they be hotels, whether they be uh, motels, bed and breakfast, or what's, oh gosh, I can't think of it. I mean, when you, when you go somewhere and you stay in an apartment and uh, you go online to look and it's oh, like an Airbnb that, or VRBO or something like that. Yes, exactly. Uh, so to do something like that, so you have you're prepared, and maybe, frankly, because you're listening to this petcast, you have the jump on everyone else who's competing to get into those same places. That's the truth. Oh yeah, for sure. Right? It's it's oftentimes it's the fastest clicker that uh, that gets the best choices. Yeah, you know. So this way, at least you're a bit prepared. So I want to make a sort of a left turn now, or maybe a right turn. I'm not sure which one we're turning. Uh, talk about uh, something that's happening right now. If you're listening in the summer, it's getting warmer outside. And you can be listening in the winter. It doesn't matter because summer will come eventually. And I'll, I'll tell you the number of pets that emergency veterinarians see. I've, I talked to a criticalist, an emergency veterinarian about this, and I said, how many cases of heat stroke did you see last year? And I don't remember the exact number. It was like 32. And I said, how many should you have seen? How many could have been avoided? And she said, 32. Because for the most <sighs> part, heat stroke can be avoided. I want to talk a little about it because we are pretty efficient by sweating at cooling ourselves off, but dogs are not so efficient, are they? They are not. So they only really, they do sweat a little bit through their pads, uh, but if you think about their overall surface area and how that correlates to the tiny surface area of their pads, um, you know, it's not it's not very efficient. So they do off load their heat by by panting um, and breathing, basically. So, um, you know, one of the things that I talk about, and I have my little French bulldog, Riggs, and so, you know, with his squishy face and his squished nose, that whole respiratory system just in general isn't super efficient. Um, and then you layer on, you know, when he starts to get get hot and he's not very, um, I would say he's not a very athletic little guy. Um, so his, his exercise tolerance is a little bit lower. And then, um, you know, I look at his, I watch his tongue basically. And as it grows in either length or width and the rapidness with each he's breathing, I start to realize, I'm like, okay, he's getting too hot. We need to slow down. We need to maybe take a break in the shade. Or if there's a way to get home as soon as possible, that's really what we want to do. Now, I want to talk a little more about that because you said something that is so incredibly important. And it's such a hint for pet parents. And that is to look at the dog's tongue. Certainly for yeah. bulldogs or French bulldogs or the brachiocephalic breeds that aren't so efficient at just 
doing this thing called breathing under the best of <laughs> circumstances. But, but for any dog, really, does the tongue often tell the story? And can you be a bit more descriptive about what we should look for? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it I think it really does, to your point, tell the story and give you an idea of where they are, both in their energy level as well as their kind of body temperature level. So, you know, I to use my Labrador as an example, and he's my running buddy. Finn has uh, more endurance than I could ever even wish for. Um, but I noticed, like, when he starts to get tired and really hot, um, like we were just at the dog park earlier today, and he's playing fetch like a madman. Um, but his tongue is, you know, now it's about twice his size as it normally is. And then it's also hanging out to the side. So he's letting me know, he's like, oh my gosh, I am trying to get this thing cooled off as quickly as possible. Um, and I am exhausted. I don't even have the energy to hold my tongue in the place that it should be. Um, so those are big signs that we need to go. And we did, we walked over to a tree in some shade, had some water, took a chill break. And, you know, and then his breathing started to slow down. His tongue got a little smaller and was back, you know, in between his two front teeth like it should be, or his front canines like it should be. Um, And, you know, and we started to play a a little bit more again. And before we, you know, called it a day and I had to get back to work. (laughs) But I think that is really something to pay attention to and a really easy thing because, if they're panting, their tongue is pretty visible. So you don't have to, like, stick your hand in the mouth or do anything like that. It's just a simple observation. Well, and the the other reason why I think we need to talk about this and pet parents need to step up and pay attention is because some dogs, not all dogs, but many dogs particularly, and you will take great offense to what I'm about to say, but those... <laughs> goofy Labradors, they'll keep going, you know, and they'll just drop even, you know, so it's up to us as adults, human adults, to step in there and say, you know what, here's what I'm observing and do exactly what you did and say, at least for now, enough is enough. Right. Yeah, we have we have to be their governor for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not so sure governor is exactly the right example with some of the governors the state I happen to live in has had, but that's a whole other story. So I want to talk about swimming a little bit. It's a great way for dogs to cool off. It is great aerobic exercise, but I have two concerns. One is in a large body of water, on occasion you get particularly older dogs or dogs who just simply get confused and swim in the wrong direction. And before you know it, I mean, no dog can swim forever. Uh, That dog's in trouble. And the second thing are the French bulldogs of the world in swimming pools that, you know, there are certain dogs that really, believe it or not, friends, they just cannot swim. And French bulldogs, I believe, bulldogs would be on that list. There are other breeds as well and individual other dogs. They fall in. They may sink like a rock. And you need something around your swimming pool to protect so that never happens. And when the dog is out in the pool area to wear a life preserver, uh, which they do now have life vest for dogs. Yeah, yep. Uh, I mean, you are preaching to the choir on this one. I think it is so very important to really slowly introduce your dog to water and really understand what their limitations are, um, understand the area if you are, to your point, going to take them to a large body of water. Um, 
having kind of scoped that place out before you take your dog there. So you understand, okay, where are the banks? Are there more shallow areas? How many dogs actually do come to this area? Um, You know, in different parts of the country to that point, when there's huge fluctuations in temperature, you can actually have algae blooms um, that can be really severely toxic to dogs. Um, Understanding, again, not only the layout, but then actually the water quality where you're going um, is going to be super important. And I love the life vests. We've got one for rigs. Um, They even make them with a little bit of a, um, some that have little bumpers that will hold up their heads, um, which especially if you have a bulldog breed or something that, you know, a a dog that has a little bit of a bigger head, some of the um, like Staffordshire Terriers and Pitbull mixes and things like that can be um, heavier in the front end. So having that little bumper underneath their chin to keep their head afloat um, is just another added safety mechanism to make sure that they can still have fun out there. And to your point, enjoy the summer activities, but do it in a very safe way. I want to talk a bit. You mentioned algae bloom. We're running out of time, but very quickly explain what you're talking about. Um, So there can be, I spent a fair amount of my career and life down in Austin, Texas, and they can, um, from time to time, we had these blue-green algae blooms that would happen. And they, it is, very, very toxic to dogs. It only takes a small amount. And if they're swimming in the water and they drink that water, um, it can make them very sick and actually can threaten their life. So, um, you know, it only takes like a two minute Google search, uh, you know, to really look at what the water quality is in whatever um, outdoor space that you're going. And so you really can better understand the risk factors involved that you're going to expose your pet to. I don't know about 2020 and 2019, lots of dogs, I don't remember the number, but lots of dogs were identified, probably many more unidentified, as dying as a result of these algae blooms. They seem to be occurring, maybe climate change, but for whatever reason, they seem to be occurring more often. So that is truly a real concern. Another would be leptospirosis. A bacteria. Sure. Your dog will never go swimming when people are done hearing us. But leptospirosis <laughs> is a bacterial infection spread through the urine of infected dogs sometimes, but mostly their rodents and other animals, even farm animals uh, that may be in the area. And that also, and it occurs in big cities, it occurs in urban and rural areas, uh, that can also potentially uh, kill a dog. So, uh, the good news for leptospirosis, unlike the algae bloom, where the only protection is don't swim there, uh, but for leptospirosis, you don't know that it's there, except there is a vaccine that works, which is a good thing. <sighs> lot to cover here, Dr. Lobos. I know, I know. <laughs> but we did it. Dr. Ruth Ann Lobos, lead veterinarian at Merrick Pet Care. Always, always, always so good to talk to you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm glad to share with your audience, Steve. Take care. Thank you, and thank you all for listening to yet another PetCast brought to you by Aha uh-huh, Merrick Pet Care. Truly, they care about your pets, and that's why we cover the topics we are covering. You've been listening to Steve Dale's PetCast, brought to you by MerrickPetCare.com. And as Steve always says, be good to your pet, and they'll be good to you.